thank you very much for the uh, cake and um, for singing happy birthday. I was not expecting that. And I was trying to figure out what happened on Friday. My mind was scrambling. I was like, something happened. What happened Friday? Why is he up there? And um, so uh, I'm glad it's not something I forgot. I was like, oh, my word, I forgot something. (laughs) We are in Matthew chapter 16, and we'll be reading from verses 21 to 28. Matthew 16, 21 through 28. If you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. We're going to finish out this chapter today. The Word of God says in verse 21, From that time Jesus began to show His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and be raised up on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on God's interest, but on man's. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will will a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in glory of his Father and with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Let's pray. Father, the passage that we're looking at today is a heavy passage. I pray now that Your Spirit would work in us so that we can think about it, meditate on it, I pray that the Spirit would illumine our minds because we don't want to just come out just having information, but we want to change. We want to be more like Christ and less like ourselves. And we know, Father, that that is your will for each of us. I pray now that we'll be able to focus our minds for this time on your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, I tried as hard as I could all week long looking at this text, trying to see if there was a way that I could soften it, that I could uh, make it not so heavy, that I could make it a little bit more cheerful. I tried to find stories and uh, uh, thought of jokes, and just, it's a very heavy passage. It's one that we we looked at, uh, the kind of this idea we looked at before in uh, Matthew chapter 10, where Jesus kind of reiterates some of these things that uh, he, he said. Um, you know, verse 37, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and he who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it, and he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. And I can't remember exactly, I, I have a feeling 
this was an empty room when I preached that sermon. Uh, we were just doing the online thing, but Jesus has already talked about this. He's already mentioned these, this theme, this, this topic. And if God says something once, it, it should be sufficient. But the fact that he is going to repeat it a second time, in, in a different context, he's going to bring it up to his disciples and, and reiterate these themes again, it, it shows an importance that Christ is putting on this aspect of discipleship and what it means to follow after Christ. Adoran Judson, he, uh, he was wanting to uh, marry Anne Hesselton, and uh, he decided to propose using uh, writing Father uh, a letter. Uh, and um, Daniel Aiken in uh, 10, Who Changed the World, uh, has a copy of part of that letter that he addressed to uh, the would-be father-in-law. He says, uh, here's the section that he uh, is going to propose. I have to now, I have now to ask you whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring, to see her no more in this world, whether you can consent to her departure to heathen land and her subject, uh, subjection to hardships and sufferings of a missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution, and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this for the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you, for the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion, and for the glory of God? Can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory, with a crown of righteousness, brightened by acclamations of praise, which shall rebound to her Savior, from heathen saved through her means from eternal woe and despair. He consented, and off she went. Married at 23, at age 37, died on the mission field. Well, what, what type of person does this? What type of person consents to their kid going off and doing this type of thing. Oh, and who signs up for this? I mean, I'm sure Anne had a saying in this, she was like, she could have said, no, I ain't doing that. I'm not going to Burma. Spend my life there. See, Adoniram Judson and Anne had a clear understanding of what it meant to be a disciple of Christ. What it meant to take up your cross and follow. So as we're going to look at this, we see that Jesus has taken his disciples into a Gentile territory. And he's in this Gentile territory, and he's giving this message, and this message is now implying that it's not just to the Jews, but it's going to be reached out to Gentiles as well. There's going to be this thing called the church, and in this church we'll see the development get, it gets developed even more through the New Testament. But eventually it's Jew and Gentile into the body of Christ together. And, and Peter has been able to give this confession. And this, the implication of the confession is that Christ is the anointed one of God. He, he's realized this, that Christ is the anointed one of God, and that also Christ is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. He, he is this one that the Old Testament prophets were talking about, that Isaiah 53 was writing about. He doesn't put the whole suffering aspect yet, but Isaiah talked about this Messiah that would come. 
Christ is this fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. And as a group, you can imagine Jesus is a little bit uh, maybe happy, content, because uh, you know how uh, it is when you're trying to teach someone uh, something and uh, they kind of have this confused look on their face and then finally you say uh, a sentence in a certain way and they finally get it and they, they understand and their eyes brighten up and you're happy because they got it. They're happy because you're going to stop trying to explain to them, right? Uh, so you can imagine on both ends, Jesus is very happy. They've understood. They've, they've gotten this confession of who Christ is, but also the disciples, they are getting it. They, this is Christ. This is the anointed one. And as we're going to move into this, we're going to look at today that suffering because of obedience to Christ is a goal to be embraced, not a tragedy to be avoided. That, that's what we're going to be looking at today. That uh, suffering because of Obedience to Christ is a goal to be embraced and not a tragedy to be avoided. Of, to be avoided, and we're going to look at three different points here. And the first point is a look at Christ. A look at Christ, and that's verses 21 and 22. We see here in verse 21 that it says, "From that time, it marks a change that's happening in Jesus' ministry. It marks a change that is about to occur." Um, in a certain way, if you could picture it as almost like a mountain, there is a uh, going up, going up, going up, and then it reaches to Peter's confession. And at that moment of this confession, now there is a, a downward uh, thing that's happening. There's a climax in, in Peter's confession and the disciples' confession, and then it, it goes to resolve itself with Christ dying. And, and even in a geographical sense where Jesus is way up north, now he's setting his face towards Jerusalem, which is in the south, and each step now that he's going to take is going to take him closer and closer to the cross and closer to his death. You might say, no, he's still going to go a little bit further north and there's going to be the mountain transfiguration. But even that is a fulfillment of verse 28. So even that ends up being a, uh, another step towards his death. So from that time marks a change that's about to be happening, and Jesus uh, began to show them. And he's showing his disciples. So this is not just everybody in general. This is something that his disciples, they're not disciples, they're not just students, they're not just people curious about religious things. They're his disciples. And what he, discuss, what he discussed with his disciples is that he must go to Jerusalem. That, uh, that must... Uh, has this, uh, it kind of has a strong obligation, a sense of obligation, something that he has to do. So it, it, he knows that this is about to happen, and he doesn't say, look, this is what's about to happen to me, so I, I'm going to move up towards Turkey and then cross over to Greece and then make my way to Spain, and I'm going to live there on the coast because I really don't want this to happen in my life. No, he has an obligation an obligation that was established before the foundation of the world. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit came up with a plan of redeeming humanity. God's plan was to involve Christ to die in our place as a substitute to buy us out of the slave market of sin. That's what he did. So now he has this obligation to go to Jerusalem. Is there another way? Is there a way to avoid Jerusalem? Maybe go and uh, go up to the north country and, and do something else. Live a good moral life. No. That's what has to happen. 
He wants to glorify the Father, and so that's what he'll do. Now, this must go to Jerusalem has three verbs that are tied to it. This must involves suffering. But it's not just suffering in general, it's suffering many things. Now, let me do a quick uh, survey here. Uh, how many of you like to suffer? How many of you like to suffer many things? There was no hands on just suffering, but many things, there was a lot less hands. He's saying he has to go and he has to suffer many things, and he's going to be doing this at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes. The leadership of Israel is against him. And he's going to suffer. That's the first of the three. The second verb is to be killed. So I, I asked if anybody likes to suffer, anyone likes to suffer many things. How about die? Now you guys are like sitting on your hands. Like, no, not me. He says, I, I, I've got to die. I've got to be killed. This is not just a, I'm going to get old and just fall asleep and, and then wake up beside the Father. No, this is be killed. Something's going to be happening to him. And then he says, be raised. So it's uh, suffer, be killed, and be raised. This word to be raised has more the implication of to awaken, uh, to wake up from a sleep. In fact, it's used that way a lot of the times, and I'll just give you two instances. Uh, Matthew chapter 1, verse 24, uh, you remember that uh, Joseph was asleep and the angel came and told him that uh, the baby that was in Mary's womb was of the Lord, was of the Spirit, and, and uh, so not to put her away. Uh, he awoke, so he was asleep. It's not like he was dead and then he was risen. Um, Matthew 2, 13, here the angel um, told, Jesus, uh, to, told Joseph to get up and go to Egypt because they were going to try to kill the child. And so he awakes and he does that. The, the verb has more of an idea of awaking than it does of um, being resuscitated. And, and he uses this word very purposefully. Now, it's interesting by Peter's reaction what he heard from Jesus and what he did not. He heard suffer, and he heard killed, but he did not hear be raised. Because this is how he responds. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. That, that word rebuke is, um, is to express a strong disapproval of someone or of something. It's used in Matthew 8, 26. If you remember, there was this storm that was happening, and Jesus was with his disciples, and they were crossing the storm, and Jesus was sleeping, and the disciples uh, come and they wake him up and they're, they say, don't, don't you care about us at all? Don't, don't you care about us? And uh, he tells them that they're a little faith and then he rebukes, he rebukes the wind, he rebukes the storm. The, the irony here is, is kind of funny in that Peter is rebuking the one who rebukes storms. I don't think that's very wise, but he, he feels this obligation. He's, he's going to rebuke him. And it's a strong word of, of, of saying that he, he, there's a disapproval on part of Peter. He says, uh, God forbid it. This shall never happen to you. And, and in Greek, it uses a double negative. In English, double, double negatives don't work. But he uses a double negative. It's like, no way, Jose, you know, type deal. This is not going to happen. We're, we're, this cannot happen to you. 
we see here as we look at this, that uh, look of Christ, it, um, we see Jesus has, was totally trusting God's plan. Jesus was totally trusting God's plan. In fact, um, you see there where it says he must go, it, it implies this obligation, and Jesus is okay with this. He, he understands that, uh, that God has a purpose and plan in why he's going to die, that it's going to save humanity. It, the plan involved dying for wicked people who rejected him. So he's not going to take off. He's not going to try to get around it. He's not going to maybe uh, put somebody else to take his place. He's going to do this because he's trusting in God's sovereignty. Do we trust in God's sovereignty? Do we trust that he is sovereignly working all things for our good, for his glory? Or do we think that he's somehow way up there in heaven somewhere with short, itty-bitty little T-Rex arms and he can't really help us? And he's there trying to do something, but we're just really left all on our own, so we've got to do everything possible for ourselves. Oh, God is not up there with itty-bitty little T-Rex arms. He has strong, he's in control of everything, anything. In fact, Colossians says that Everything is held together by Christ. Everything. Put that into perspective. Even this virus. Christ could allow it to just... And yet he holds it together. But there's been so many people die, so many people sick. And yet God has a purpose in all of it. Jesus was totally trusting God's plan. And so he was going to do it. He had to go to Jerusalem. Also, Jesus has hope. Uh, we see here that he says that he will be awakened on the third day. In other words, that uh, in his death, God was going to accept his sacrifice uh, and his wrath was going to be appeased. We were going to be propitiated. No longer were we going to have God's wrath upon us, but he was going to take Christ's death and accept it. And therefore, he was going to be raised on the third day. He had hope. Now, Christ is the first fruits of the resurrections. And really, if we are in Christ, we are also going to be risen. Do we have hope? Oh, so many people don't have hope. I heard a statistic that the CDC said that ages 18 to 45, uh, last year from March until December, one in four adults committed, uh, uh, contemplated committing suicide. One in four? There's no hope. They, they looked at the economy. They looked at the virus. They looked at the mutations. They looked at everything going on. And they said, there's just no hope. Christ had hope. If we are in Christ, we should also have this hope. We can risk anything because we're safe in Christ. Now, we saw that... Um, uh, a look at Christ, but now we're going to look at uh, a look at the disciple. Uh, look at the disciples. Here, are the disciples, verse twenty-four says, uh, Jesus said to his disciples, "If, if anyone wishes, uh, so he, he's not going to say just um, uh, just Jews. He, he's not just saying those of the tribe of Judah. Not only just Benjamin. It's anyone, anyone at all. If anyone wishes." 
NetWord wish has this idea of uh, to have something in mind for oneself that you purpose, uh, but it involves also this aspect of, of a planning. So you're purposing for, for something. So uh, people desire to have a car, and what do they do? They start putting a plan in process to be able to acquire that car. Or they, uh, they want to get married on a certain date, and so they start putting together a plan. Their desire is this, and so they start working towards that plan. So if uh, anyone who desires this, it says, anyone who desires to come after me, that's, that's your desire, that's what you want. What is involved with coming after Christ? What is required to come after Christ? He says, he must. And he's going to give, uh, he must deny himself, that's the first, take up his cross, and follow me. Three things. That word for uh, deny is to refuse to recognize something, uh, and it's to act also wholly self in a selfless manner. To act in a wholly selfless manner. Uh, not for yourself, not for your own advantage, but uh, for the advantage of someone else. To deny themselves. Now, this goes totally contrary to culture, right? Um, right now, we, we're all about esteeming each other, right, and, and building self, self up. Uh, we don't deny ourselves. Uh, we get mad if we don't get one of the little uh, attendance stickers, right, on our board. Uh, we, we get mad if, if we played soccer and we lost and we don't get the participation trophy. Uh, we say, hey, I, I'm a person. I need to be acknowledged. And the idea of denying oneself goes contrary to our culture. He says the first thing is you've got to deny yourself. And, and the way is, is this is imperative. This is something that you had to do at a certain point, deny yourself. And then it says the second imperative is uh, to take up, to take up. So as Christ is now putting his face towards Jerusalem, he's going to go south. As each step, he's approaching his death. Basically, he's already taking up his cross. The disciple also picks up his cross and starts to follow. And that's what he says. At, at some point, the person has to decide to do this. This isn't something that's done for you. It's not like you get placed a cross on you. The person has to decide to deny themselves, to take up the cross. And then the third thing, the third imperative is um, follow. Now, the other two were, are kind of in the past tense, like this is something that was supposed to be done, and then the follow me is in this tense of uh, a, a present tense, a, a present ongoing tense. It, it implies that you're constantly renewing this aspect of following after Christ. That, that's what you're doing. If you wish to come after me, this is what is involved. Now, you might have been shared a gospel presentation that reduce things down all the way to its very, very basic stuff. And the idea of suffering for Christ wasn't really involved. And you're like, whoa, 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 I filled out that little card and uh, I, I stepped forward, but no one told me about suffering. No one told me about having to deny myself, having to, to take up a cross. And this is what Jesus is saying, that those who want to come after me, this is what they must do. Verse 25 says, whoever wishes to save his life. So if you have this desire that somehow you're going to save yourself, you, you want to save, you want to protect yourself, what, is it, what do you do? I mean, we're, we should be, have our eyes glued on this text. Uh, the whole world is telling us to save ourselves. We still, see, we still see the safe pizza deal, right? 
Uh, we still get the little sticker on the pizza box that says it's safe. Uh, the other day I was at uh, a pizza chain. I'm not going to say which one. I saw the lady putting the little stickers on there. And, and in the back there was a guy, um, and he was putting the, the boxes together. And um, it was kind of funny because a lot of the protocols, uh, he wasn't using any of the protocols. And it was kind of funny because it was like, if the box is already infected before the pizza's put in, then what's the good of putting the little sticker on, right? Uh, but it was advertised, this is safe. This is safe for you. And so we, we want the safe. What, what does a safe life look like? You, want it, you wish to save your life? You'll lose it. This is what's going to happen. It's a future tense. If you try to live this life trying to save it, you, you live every day grasping to somehow protect yourself to insulate yourself from everything that's going on, Jesus says, you'll lose it. Then he says, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. How in the world do you find life by losing it? Now, this isn't losing it in general, like, like you signed up for this social justice movement, and while you were there for that social justice movement, you got shot and killed. It's not dying in that sense. This is dying for the sake of Christ. It says, if you die for my sake, you'll gain it. How does God do that? I don't know. But see, this is where it takes a step of faith. And without faith, it's impossible to please God. Because this goes against our logic. Our logic says, you want to be safe? Protect yourself. And Jesus is saying, no, you'll lose it. You'll have a life that's not worth living. It'll be pointless. You won't live on mission for God unless you lose your life for His sake, then you'll find it. I think about um, experientially, uh, I think about uh, Elliot, uh, Jim Elliot, Nate Saint, Peter Fleming, Ed McCulley, and Roger Yoderian, who died January 8th 1956, 65 years ago. Here they were trying to reach people with the gospel. They gave their life to, to give the gospel. And in that process, they, they died. They had been trying to recruit more people to reach, more people to go out as missionaries. Jim Elliott had a passion to see people go out. And there were very few. After their death, there's been countless thousands of people that have gone out to preach the gospel. Countless thousands. How, how does that happen? How is it God uses their death to reach not only the town that they were trying to reach, but missionaries sent around the world to preach the gospel? Ah, oh, because they saw the example of someone who was giving their life for Christ's sake. And they gained it at the end. You know, uh, it's unfortunate that uh, parents are usually the biggest hindrance to the cause of missions. Uh, from a little kid, they start in teaching their kids that they need to be thinking about a career, something to support themselves, something to contribute to society. And, and if perchance they get a conviction of saying, hey, I want to surrender my life to go and preach the gospel, they say, well... How about you first get a, a career, and in case you know God decides to move you along to something else, then, then you'll have something to fall back on. And parents, unfortunately, are the, one of the biggest hindrances 
kids going out and preaching the gospel. They say, no, not my son. Send the other person. I want to keep my kids nice and safe right here around me. See, what they don't realize, those parents, what we don't realize is we're teaching our kids to lose their lives. They'll have a life that's not worth living if they live to save themselves. If they live for their own purpose, it's, it's a worthless life. He says, if you want to find your life, you'll lose it for his sake. He says in verse 26, what, what, will, uh, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world? forfeits his soul. So now it's not just trying to save his own soul, but now he's trying to acquire even more to gain the whole world. Or, or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? What, what could you possibly give for your soul? What do you have that you could try to exchange for? There's nothing. He says, uh, for the Son of Man will is, coming, is going to come in glory. So he's now moving from the perspective of where they're looking at now and they're considering their own life and what it means to follow after Christ. And he's telling them there's a future coming when Christ will come, and he's going to come with the glory of the Father and with the angels, and then he's going to repay. He's going to give out according to their deeds, what they did. Now we know at the cross, if you've trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, his death paid for your past, present, and future sins, all your sins. So you're not going to be paid for sins, but you will be paid for your deeds. How did you do that? What was the motivation of your heart? What was motivating you to do what you did? Were you trying to protect yourself? Or were you trying to give your life to the Lord? He says, verse 28, Truly I say to you that there are some who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Uh, this has been interpreted a whole bunch of different ways, and uh, you can't get into all the different ways. But one of the big problems for this is um, uh, some have conjured up that maybe some disciples are still alive, you know, even now, because uh, they're supposed to be seeing the kingdom. Others have said, well, uh, if they are going to see the kingdom, it implies that the kingdom of heaven is already now happening. This, this kingdom, his kingdom, his messianic kingdom, it, it's already happening now. It, it can't be that the apostles are still walking around now. Um, they, they died. And it can't be that there's the kingdom happening, his messianic kingdom happening right now, because there's certain aspects of this kingdom that we're not seeing active. We see uh, the prince of this world being very active, right? Uh, so what does it mean? Well, the, the chapter, chapter six, uh, 17, really verse 28 should be uh, verse 1 of chapter 17. And it's at this Mount of Transfiguration where they see uh, six days later, they see the Son of Man uh, on, in all his glories. So in each thing, he's doing a step further to Jerusalem, which is a step closer to obeying God, which is to his death. Now, the last point, I, I think you probably noticed, we jumped over verse 23, and it's a, a look at God. The last point is a look at God. Uh, verse 23 acts as a Janus. Uh, you remember that uh, Roman God who uh, has one head but two faces, one face that looks to the past and one face that looks to the future. And in literature, a Janus uh, describes the events that preceded it and the events that come after it. Uh, a very uh, popular Janus is found in um, Genesis 15, verse 6, where it said, 
and um, Abraham uh, believed God and it was counted to righteousness. Well, in chapter 12, he had already picked up his tent and, and moved away. So he had already acted in faith. And then we see further on down the road that he goes to sacrifice his son. And that was an act of faith. So chapter 15, verse 6, defines the previous things that he had done and what he would do later on. And verse 23 is a Janus. It, it, defines, it defines Jesus' actions. And furthermore, it should define the disciples' actions. Let's look at it. It says, But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. Now, he had just said that Peter is going to be in the foundation of the church. Here's the keys. You have authority. And then now all of a sudden he's calling him Satan. It's like, wow, that really escalated really quickly. Uh, he said, Get behind me. You are a stumbling block to me. Why is he a stumbling block? Why did it change from the church is going to be built. You're going to be one of the stones of the foundation. Here's the keys. Now you're a stumbling. What caused this? It says you are not setting your mind. And that has to, uh, to develop an attitude based on careful thought. Setting your mind has this idea of developing an attitude based on careful thought. You're not setting your mind on God's interest, but on man. See, and just like that, he went from thinking about Jesus being the Christ to thinking about the implications of what does it mean that the rabbi that I'm following is going to get crucified? If the rabbi gets crucified, what's going to happen to me? I've been following him. And Jesus says, yeah, you're going to die too, just so that you understand. If you, if you come after me, you're going to die. It describes... Jesus' actions, and it describes the actions of the disciples. Now the question is, as we look at this, suffering because of obedience to Christ is a goal to be embraced, not a tragedy to be avoided. Now, that's what we've been looking at today, is that suffering because of obedience to Christ is a goal to be embraced and not a tragedy to be avoided. And the question is, what are we setting our mind to? Are, are we setting our mind to be thinking on, God's, on God and God's things, or are we thinking on human things? Well, we can do a quick inventory. We can just think about it really quickly. Where, where do you spend your time? What do you spend your time doing? Well, where do you spend your money? What happens when somebody threatens your dream? I have a dream of doing this. And all of a sudden, someone comes and threatens that dream. See, none of God's plans are threatened. <laughs> They're already done. It's just a matter of time. But our dreams get threatened with people, with situations, with economies changing. What happens when those dreams get threatened? It shows who we're setting our mind on, if we're setting our mind on God or on human things. Maybe today you've never set your mind on God's things because you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. Oh, you know a lot of stories. You've seen the flannel graph. You've gone through and you, you know all the stories, but you've never had that moment of trusting Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. And therefore, as you look back at last, week's, at last week, last month, your thoughts were on human things and rather than on God's things. You can today trust Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. You can put your faith in what he did on the cross and be saved. 
For all of us here who are accepted to Christ, consider what you did last week. Where did you spend your time? Did it show that you have this, this desire that you've set your mind on God's things, on God's interest? Or does it just show that you're interested in man's things? Let's pray. Father, I pray now as we...